Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. Welcome to another episode of Talk Dizzy to Me. My name is Danielle Tate. I'm a vestibular physical therapist and as always joined by my co-host, Dr. Abby Ross. Today, we're also joined by Jeff Walter and our special guest, Dr. Peter Johns. Hello. Thank you for coming on. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Johns. (laughs) I was wondering if you would give our listeners a brief background on yourself, what you do, where you are, uh, before we kick off the episode. Well, I'm an emergency physician that practices in Ottawa, Canada. I've been practicing emergency medicine for, I think, 36 years. And... um, uh, I'm from Ottawa originally, and and uh, I did some training in Toronto and and uh, my residency there. And when I came back, I started working here, and I've been working here ever since. Um, in terms of my vertigo interest, it kind of came because I was assigned the topic nobody wanted to teach because I was the junior staff. So I, I was assigned vertigo because who wants to teach vertigo? Everybody hates vertigo in emergency medicine pretty much. And... Um, all I did was look at what was in the textbooks at the time, which was very meager and probably incredibly poor information that I don't think I taught anyone anything useful. And then after a few years, um, a resident in family medicine, we had, we saw a patient who probably had BPPV. I'm pretty sure he did. And, and she said, you know, there's supposed to be this way you can move their head around and it, it fixes them. And I said, no, no, that's, no, we don't do that kind of thing. That's, that's doesn't make any sense. But I thought someone might ask me about it, so I thought I'd go and check it out. So I had to go walk down to the medical library, walk through all the stacks and find the Epley's papers and read them. And 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 I started seeing it's like 80% every time, one, one time at 80% are cured, almost all these little studies, initial studies, must be something to this. So then eventually I, I figured out how to do it after watching little stick diagrams that Epley had made, which was hard to figure out. And... I, I started curing people and they were like the most thankful, grateful people. I thought, here's the patients I hate to see. Now I like seeing them. And, and it kind of went from there. Um, and, and now, uh, now I, you know, I, I, I usually look through the, the list of patients. So I see vertigo. I look at their little triage note and see if it sounds like a real good vertigo or, or not. And if it sounds like a good one, I'll send my resident and then uh, we'll, we'll be able to learn to teach them something about vertigo, hopefully. That's awesome. Now, you know, we don't have to no longer go through the stacks and go through medical books. We can just hit up YouTube if we need some additional research or Google Scholar, which is amazing. And I have to say your videos on YouTube have been awesome. And I've been watching for a long time now, especially your video on hints, which I'm sure we'll touch on as we go through here. But um, anybody familiar with the vestibular world has got to be familiar with your videos. They're um, greatly uh, informational and easy to watch. So we'll we'll make sure we link those in our show notes for anybody watching. I think All it's right. uh, I think it's important to give a shout out to Dr. John's dog as well, who goes by the name of Epley for all our <laughs> listeners. In case you're wondering, this is a true vestibular guru over here. If he has a dog named Epley, listen, I, I proposed it as a joke, and my <laughs> wife said, "Yeah, that's a good name. Let's do that." And I thought, I don't know if I want to have a dog named Epley, but it turns out you can compartmentalize it because you know if you say, "Do you want to?" go to Buffalo, New York, you don't automatically think of big, hairy beasts. And and so when I think of the Epley Maneuver, I don't think of my dog. When I call my dog, I don't think of the Epley Maneuver. So it, it, it's, it's a pretty good name to call in the dog, dog park. You know, hey, Epley. <laughs> That's funny. 
Love it. All right, so why don't we jump into some questions? Um, we've, we've come up with some questions that we're gonna ask each other and kind of take some time answering. And you kind of got into this already about getting in, interested in your dizziness and vertigo in emergency medicine. Um, how have you seen that change throughout the years? You know, you went from going through the stacks and finding this in the, uh, in the textbooks. Has information become more readily available? Is this something that everybody covers now in emergency medicine? Uh, so in terms of vertigo itself, uh, how, well, okay. So vertigo remains the unwanted topic to a lot of physicians who've been out in practice um, because they, they, they've been taught in a certain way um, that, that that's not very helpful. I did a recent ver a video on how the tables of central versus peripheral vertigo um, are sort of doomed to failure and to confuse you because it has BPBV and vestibular neuritis on one side, which are very dissimilar clinically, and they have uh, vestibular uh, neuritis and posterior circulation stroke on the on two opposite sides, which are actually very similar. So that's the way we were taught. It's to use these tables to figure out what was wrong. So so that that's kind of persists today. I just saw a video on YouTube about a guy who, who, was, who was presenting all these these same tables with with a lot of misinformation. So. Unfortunately, it, it hasn't, you know, if you actually go to the emergency department and get assessed properly for vertigo in North America, mm. I think you're, 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 you're very lucky. It's, I would say the majority of people, you know, they, they're, not, they're not really comfortable doing the Dix-Hallpike test or doing the Epley maneuver or doing Hansen. If they do it, are they doing it right? They may be, they may not. So things things have progressed in terms of at least the the, the, not, the people know about the Epley maneuver and they know about the Hints exam, but are they good at it? Are they do they have the bandwidth? Do they are they interested in learning about it? I'm trying to um, encourage people to, to to learn those things, but I find that um, people who've already been out in practice for a while they kind of become um, non adopters. Of, of things like hints and and not worse than being a non-adopter, they kind of become anti-hints and tell you it can't work or we can't learn this. So uh, it's it's an uphill battle currently, but I think um, with 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 the knowledge that's coming out of um, how useful they are, and I think I think that people when they learn it at a younger age, as medical students and residents learn it, they're going to start to become adopters and. You know, I, hopefully in, in, in the next five or 10 years, it'll become much more commonplace. Yeah, I think a, a theme that has been thread throughout some of our recent episodes is how vestibular care is ever changing, right? What we did five years ago, even a year ago sometimes is different. And some of these newer things take a little bit to implement into practice. So definitely hints. I think we should get right into that. Can you talk to us about hints, what it shows, what tests are involved in it? So the hints exam is a series of three bedside uh, tests, um, and they comprise head and pulse tests, nystagmus, and tests of skew. And they're useful in, a, in, a, in specific circumstances. You don't apply it to all patients with vertigo, which is what somebody on YouTube just recently tried to say, that when you go to the emergency department with, with vertigo, every, you, you shouldn't leave without a HINTS exam, which is not true at all. The only people you should apply it to are the people who have the acute vestibular syndrome, where they have ongoing vertigo for days or hours, or uh, and, and they have 
uh, gait in instability and they have nausea, vomiting, and it's worse when they move their head. And importantly, they have to have nystagmus. Uh, there's some people who aren't, um, who, who believe that you can actually do the, the HINTS exam on people without nystagmus, but then they say, but you can't rely on the head impulse test then. Well, that the head impulse test is really the whole point of the, uh, the, the, the HINTS exam. Um, so anyway, they're, Getting back to the components. So the, when I do the HINTS exam, I start with nystagmus because you have to have nystagmus in order to uh, go ahead with it. So in, in someone who has a peripheral disorder, most of the people who are going to have uh, acute vestibular syndrome in the immersed department are going to have vestibular neuritis. And they're going to have nystag spontaneous nystagmus, which means looking straight ahead. And when they look off to the side, they're going to see, it, 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 if they look in the direction of the nystagmus is, it's going to increase when they look off that side and look the other side, it's going to least lessen in amplitude and frequency. And that's typical of vestibular neuritis. Uh, if someone, uh, now, unfortunately, a, a cerebellar stroke can present exactly the same nystagmus. If, if, if all the nystagmus in cerebellar stroke was completely different than what I just described, you wouldn't need the HINTS exam. You'd only need the N exam for nystagmus. So, but, but it is true that in, in cerebellar stroke, you can see um, vertical nystagmus or you can see nystagmus where it look one way and it beats one way and they look the other way and it beats the other way. If you see that, you're done. It's a central cause. It, there's no peripheral cause that does that. The next thing you do is the test is Q, which is uh, to simply cover one eye and then to quickly move to the other eye and to look to see if you see any vertical or diagonal um, movement of the eye. So little horizontal nystagmus, back and forth, that doesn't matter. A diagonal or, or purely vertical, that's abnormal skew. And that's, again, a, a hint central result. And, and if you have any results of the HINTS exam of the three components that are, are central result, you're central and you're worried about a stroke. Um, the, thi the thing I see wrong about that people do with, um, well, actually, the first thing I, I go back to the nystagmus. One of the things I see people doing wrong is they don't remove fixation. I don't know if you guys remove fixation when you're looking for nystagmus a lot. And what do you use? Uh, we use infrared goggles, um, video oculography. So I, I use a different system than Jeff, but um, it allows us at least to remove fixation and look to see if there was any suppression of nystagmus. And if we can tease out um, maybe a little bit of increase in nystagmus, if there was some spontaneous with fixation. How much do those goggles cost? Well, we were actually just talking about this yesterday. You know, there is a lot of um, headway being made in the field with some compromise, right? There are um, models that are coming out that are much more affordable, but now in the digital age, as Jeff will, Jeff will attest to, um, we start to lose the crispness of our, our video feed because of the digital feed into our computers. So I use a, a system that came out of Australia called the Vesticam. Jeff is using Micromedical's version or uh, intraacoustics now, the Visualize 505. Um, both have a digital input either to a phone or a computer. So uh, live view is great, but when we go back to look at the recordings, we start to get a little degradation um, in our feed from there, which can be hard to go back and watch some things and pick up on the very small, fine things that we can sometimes see. So, but did you all obviously ruin fixation when you're looking for Nystagmus. Emergency physicians generally don't. They just say, "Look at look at my finger here, look at my finger there," and that, as you know, is fixation, and that stops your eyeball from moving generally. And um, especially if it's a peripheral cause like vestibular neuritis, especially if it's been a few days and it's starting to get better. So I, I tell people just take a blank piece of paper, say, "Look over at that wall," 
and then keep looking at that wall as if this paper is not there, and you can bring out the stagmas that you wouldn't see if you didn't do that. Uh, so it's uh, you have to look carefully to make sure that, especially when it's been going for a few days, that they don't have some spontaneous nystagmus because that, um, or, or that you you want to you don't want to miss the spontaneous nystagmus because if you if the person says I've been dizzy for three days and and you look at you don't you don't think you see any but you remove fixation you see it well then they they probably have recovery vestibular neuritis you can go ahead to the hints exam the the other thing getting back to the text test is cue sorry to get a little out of order here but I see people sort of doing this a lot you know kind of like doing this or or they start going real fast like that, or or they take or they touch the patient's head like that. Uh, so there's a there's it's funny although it's it seems like a simple thing to do. It's 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 not hard to do it wrong too. So so this is the way you do it. Just one eye, next eye. You can use your hand. You, um, you can use a little Maddox rod. I'm sure you guys have. So um, the next thing to look for is uh, the head impulse test, which is the hardest thing to do and the and the hardest thing to interpret. Uh, but it's the most useful one because almost well, every everybody who has vestibular neuritis in the first few days, which is what most patients with acute vestibular syndrome have who show up in the emergency department, most of them have vestibular neuritis, all of them will have a fairly abnormal head impulse test. And what that is, is uh, you're testing the vestibular, you guys know all this, but it's testing the vestibular ocular reflex. And if I'm having right beating nystagmus um, and it and increases when I look to the right, then the, the ear that's affected if it's still right is the left ear. And when I turn my head rapidly towards the left, so some from off center to the center really quickly, uh, my eyes aren't gonna stay on target. They're gonna kind of go off and then flick back. And that's called the catch-up saccad, which is much easier to explain when you see my videos, but uh, that's what you're looking for. And if you see that, that's, that's very strong evidence that they have a, a vestibular neuritis and not a stroke. So, um, and the, the way you do that is to make sure you grab their, I'm gonna take out my glasses, you may make sure you grab their, their skull, not that you'd be usually sit, standing, or standing or sitting in front of them, have them fixate on your nose or your mask, and you, have, you move their head slowly at first, and then you very quickly move them to the midline, and you look for that catch-up saccad, which should be, as I say, if it's a right-being nystagmus, should be towards the other ear. And um, in, now in cerebellar stroke, because the um, vestibular ocular reflex doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't um, uh, loop through the cerebellum, then you get a normal head impulse test, which is difficult for people who aren't thinking a lot about this to understand why is a normal test scary? Because, well, if you can't demonstrate that they have a vestibular nerve problem, you probably have a brain problem. And... Um, that's 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 the hints exam. The, the, the last thing is that uh, there's another component called the the hints plus, which uh, David Newman Toker added to pick up ICA stroke. So the anterior inferior cerebellar artery is a um, one of the one of the arteries in posterior circulation that when it infarcts, it has it has a branch that feeds the labyrinth. Which oh look at this! I have a beautiful model that someone sent me. Imagine that. Yeah, there's two. I have a left and a right. Yeah. They look cheap to me. Oh. What's that? They look are cheap guys, to me. Are you guys still selling them? I don't see them on the website, but. We have them on pause for right now. We're kind of reconfiguring. Oh. And I have to say, you had one of the very, very first models that we ever put out on the market. I remember being deeply embarrassed. Oh, yes, because it broke on the way to Canada. And remember, we went back and forth trying to figure out how to get you one in, in whole. 
and make everything right. But I have to say, you've been a fan of our models for a while, and we appreciate that. And my favorite one is the is the one that's about this size. And I just mm -hmm. put it in my, my pocket, my scrubs, and I pull it out, and I ask the, the medical student, so what's this? And then we start talking about vertigo. And this is my <laughs> second favorite one is this little baby here. I can't. I, it's a little it's, true it's, to size. It's the, the actual size one. Which I love that always, when you it freaks out, freaks you out that like what these little things do all that information. It's kind of hard <laughs> to believe, but in any case, so the ICA stroke, ICA stroke, the anterior inferior cerebellar cerebellar, cerebellar artery has a branch that will uh, supply the labyrinth, which has the organs of uh, hearing and balance. And so, if you infarct the ICA area, you'll get a cerebellar infarct, and this will be infarct. You'll lose your hearing, lose your balance. And uh, you, you, and you also have an abnormal head impulse test because it looks like a peripheral cause, but it's actually caused by ischemic cause. So that's why a bedside test of hearing. Can you hear that? Can you hear that? If you had an ICA stroke affecting this ear, they say I, I can't hear that. And if this is a new finding, and assuming that they don't have a, a you know pre-existing hearing problem, that'd be very concerning for an ICA stroke. So you should work them up appropriately. So that's the hints exam. Important. Just if I didn't emphasize it before. Um, that you have to have all three peripheral results in order to call it vestibular neuritis, or all four if you're using the HINTS. And so the normal, the, 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 in the HINTS exam, HINTS plus exam, uh, test of hearing should be normal for vestibular neuritis because they don't have um, hearing loss with vestibular neuritis. And then for, uh, if any of the uh, results are central, boom, you're worried about a central cause, you're worried about stroke, you got to work them up. So Dr. Johns, with the with the research that's come out involving hints in this battery of tests together, would you say that your recommendation for further imaging has lessened? Well, um, I here's the thing. Um, I think Canada is slightly different than the United States. We don't do a lot of imaging. You have to you have to beg to get an MRI pretty much in, in my hospital. We're tertiary care hospital. And um, to get an MRI for vertigo, you really have to have a, something good. And it's another point we didn't talk about too much is that, is that initially these patients with um, on, ongoing vertigo and nystagmus should be screened for central features. If they, uh, here's somebody who has nuanced vertigo and nystagmus and they have a new significant headache, then they could be having a, a cerebellar bleed or a vertebral artery dissection or neck pain with a vertebral artery dissection. If they're unable to walk unaided or, uh, or, or stand unaided, then that's, that's, that's not, peripheral causes don't normally do that. If they have the usual stroke symptoms, if they're having tingling numbness, uh, their arm is wonky, um, their speech was slurred, they have double vision, especially a vertical double vision, that's not vestibular neuritis, that's not PPBV. I don't really care what their hints exam shows at that point, they need to be worked up. Um, so I, I would say that I never really did a lot of imaging for vertigo and, um, I, I probably do more now when I realize how a vertebral artery dissection can present, present fairly subtly. I mean, I had a woman uh, a few years ago, middle-aged, uh, at work, got vertigo, vomited, um, arm felt a little wonky, a little tingly, lasted 45 minutes, totally fine now. And I'm talking to her and I'm saying, any headache? No. Any neck pain? Yeah, my neck's been hurting for about a week. Oh, why is that? I don't know. Went to a walk-in clinic. They said I must have strained it. Did you strain it? No. So now she's got wonky, a bit of wonky arm, neck pain. Do a CT angiogram, bilateral vertebral artery dissections. 
So I'm, I'm doing more for looking for those sort of things because those things are often missed. But in terms of, uh, you know, vestibular neuritis, I, I think I, I send them home with more uh, certainty that I'm doing the right thing because I see that abnormal catch-ups of CAD and I, and I feel quite confident that uh, I'm, I'm not missing something. But you have to also, you know, chart it correctly too, which is just saying hints negative. Uh, I'm not sure that's really uh, adequate to say that you did a proper exam and you know what you're doing. Sure, definitely just, looking at the patient as a whole. Yeah. I just wanted to make some comments on the hints, if it's okay. Sure. A um, couple things. When you look for, just for the audience, when you look for, when you see horizontal nystagmus, I totally agree with Dr. Johns. Horizontal nystagmus is not always peripheral. But one mm -hmm. distinguishing factor can be is if there's a little bit of torsion with it. When you have an acute vestibular loss, you get horizontal nystagmus with torsion that again should accentuate when you block fixation. So if the nystagmus is purely horizontal and doesn't have that little bit of torsion to it when you're looking at it spontaneously, that's kind of a red flag. And another way to block fixation, which is really handy that doesn't require expensive equipment is just to occlude one eye in a dark room and just shine a bright light in the patient's other eye. So that's an effective way to block fix to block fixation is to just cover an eye and irrigate the other eye with bright light in a dark room, and then you can see the globe, the eye real well in that situation. So that's, I think that's a helpful way to block fixation when you don't have goggles. Um, yeah, yeah. David Newman Toker wrote a paper about that pen light uh, test. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Any sort of light source and. I think the listener should keep in mind, I think that was a good point about AICA stroke. It really can mimic labyrinthitis because labyrinthitis involves an acute loss of hearing and acute loss of vestibular function. But we end up imaging patients that we suspect have labyrinthitis anyhow, because once you have an acute unilateral hearing loss, approximately 10% of vestibular schwannomas can present that way. So you might as well just get an MRI anyhow in that situation. So I do think that's important. Um, so let me ask from an outpatient PT perspective, then if we have somebody coming in as direct access, they haven't seen their physician yet, and they're looking like a vestibular labyrinthitis, something that seems very peripheral in nature, do we, re should we refer immediately back to the doctor and have them get imaged? Um, is this something that we can work with? Uh, what do you suggest that we do? Are you saying, so you're saying they have acute vestibular syndrome and they have hearing loss or tinnitus? Yes. Uh, so the answer is we don't know because we don't know the incidence of ICA stroke versus labyrinthitis. Uh, I, and so I, the way I've, when I've asked, been asked this before, I'll say if they're old and they have risk factors for stroke uh, and they out of the blue developed hearing loss and acute vestibular syndrome all at the same time, I'm worried about an ICA stroke. If they say I've had a cold and, uh, and, uh, and my ear was hurting and, and uh, now it's kind of ringing a bit and now I'm getting dizzy and they're 23 years old and they're healthy, Maybe I'll call that vestibular uh, labyrinthitis. Uh, sorry, um, viral labyrinthitis. Everybody in between, I think it depends on your resources, which I think, you know, in the United States, MRI seems to be a little more common than in Canada. And your risk tolerance, which is different in Canada and the USA too. So I think it depends on your, your pattern of practice. Um, I can tell you in my hospital, that guy would be sent home if you sent him in. Uh, like if they had a, if they had a, um, a viral labyrinthitis, a story that was consistent, they were young, you'd probably send them home without doing an MRI. So but that's where that I, might be different. 
that's where our, our history comes in and clinical decision making to really make that judgment call. You know, that's really important to sit down and get the full story from the patient, get everything in the history, make sure you're asking about all the red flags and that way you can feel comfortable in your decision in the end. Absolutely. Now, so here's a question for you guys, though. So if, if I am confident that it's vestibular neuritis and, I, and, I'm, and they're well enough to go home, they're they're walking around, they're, they're doing a little, uh, you know, uh, wall surfing. Um, and so what what am I going to tell them to do if I'm, I, I think referring to the vestibular uh, physio is, is an excellent idea. And what is it that you guys do for them? How, what is it that you think that you that, that makes a difference for them? I mean, just I getting moving is a huge, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Well, I would, I think that definitely referring them for vestibular therapy is helpful. And I think at a minimum, an outpatient audiogram is suggested also just to make sure there is no cochlear involvement. We sometimes see patients that are very, very fixated on their vestibular involvement when they have acute vestibular loss and they don't care too much about their hearing. And sometimes the hearing is what doesn't bounce back, but just making sure that the cochlea is not involved in an audiogram is not terribly costly. So I think at a testing minimum as an outpatient, they should get that audiogram and rehab. And if everything goes well, not much more than that. And if the audiogram would show an asymmetric sensory neural hearing loss on the same side of the, as the vestibular loss, they probably on an outpatient basis need a little bit more of a workup as to why both are involved potentially. I think generally speaking to Dr. Johns, if you start the ball rolling with the education process so that a patient understands that going home and lying in bed for five days until they have their evaluation is not the way to go, pending that they're safe, of course, but starting the education process so that by the time they do get to outpatient care, they understand that actually our job is to guide their movement. We don't want to overwhelm them. We don't want to go too far too fast, but we do want to safely get them moving again. We will recreate some symptoms, but in a, you know, a challenging but doable way. Yeah, that's where vestibular therapy becomes very counterintuitive, um, especially for somebody with vestibular loss. You know, the important thing is to get them moving and keep them moving so that they don't end up with chronic or prolonged symptoms. The sooner they move, the faster they start to compensate and the better they start to feel but it's very counterintuitive for anyone to kind of pick up naturally. You know, if you have a sore muscle, you can stretch it out and it feels better. When you have vestibular dysfunction, in order to start exercising that, you have to stir the pot a little bit and you end up bringing up some symptoms. And that's where a lot of education comes on the physical therapy part. You know, we treat the patients once or twice a week for about 45 minutes to an hour, but the real work kind of goes into their, their homework at home their consistency with gaze stabilization exercises and staying active and moving, but um, limiting them within their tolerance. It's not a no pain, no gain situation with vestibular therapy. You have to be careful not to exceed a threshold of increasing symptoms so much that their body can't recover quickly within a couple of minutes following stopping their exercises. So initially the physio or the physical therapist is really educating the patient giving them the tools that they need that individually matches their needs and their symptoms, and then gradually progresses them slowly over time. So we become more of a, of a guidance and someone to kind of individualize their plan of care while making sure that they stay safe at home and they continue to trend on the positive outlook. Right. I think the patients too should keep in mind for it is, you know, if you have a patient who's very young and active, they're probably less in need of rehabilitation, but if you have somebody who has a high anxiety profile, and other balance impairments outside of vestibular involvement. 
as the patient probably needs more form formalized rehab. Big time. Yeah, agreed. Dr. Johns, when you think about the patient population you see in the ED, how or what percentage would you say are, are peripheral based and what percentage or versus more central based? Well, I guess the big, the big uh, weighting factor in that is the, whether you consider uh, vestibular migraine central, which it, it is, and whether it's recognized, which in the emergency department almost never is, um, it's it's one of the it's 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 the, the least recognized uh, uh, condition that shows up. There's a couple of my colleagues that I talked to them recently that I explained to them how you make the diagnosis of vestibular migraine by history, and um, it, it came to me hard when I when I, I actually went to Sue Whitney's uh, vestibular rehab uh, um, weekend in in Pittsburgh in 2012, I think. And, uh, and I, I heard Joe Furman talk about vestibular migraine, and I still didn't know how to diagnose it because the questions you have to ask, how exactly what the, diagno the, you know, the diagnostic criteria didn't quite come across. So I only in, in the past few years learned how to make the diagnosis of vestibular migraine. And um, I've taught some of the other cl clinicians, they say, oh yeah, I make it all the time now. It's probably as, almost as common as BPBV in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. So the, the actual ratio is almost, the same for central and peripheral if you take that into account. But what's not happening is they're not being diagnosed and and, um, and it's not it's not a dangerous central like the other ones, but people certainly suffer. So the most common thing that we see is definitely BPBV. Um, we see, um, you know, obviously a lot of posterior. Now, here's a, I, I see about a third of my cases are horizontal canal BPBV. Uh, there's the only study that I know of that looked at uh, training emergency doctors to do both the Dix-Hulpike test and the supine roll test uh, for patients with vertigo and balance in, in the past seven, developing the past seven days. So, you know, that was a study by Vanny in 2017 that I, I mentioned, uh, I think, earlier. And um, he he basically found 39% of the people with BPVV had horizontal canal. Now, what 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 are you guys seeing in terms of how, how, how much do you see in, I, in horizontal? I think... I think the canal that you'll see involved highly depends on where you work. I think in your setting, you'll see a higher distribution of horizontal canal BPPV than you would see in an outpatient setting where a patient's been dizzy for weeks or months before they're seen. Because if you look at modeling, debris can, looks like it can just as easily go into the horizontal canal as the posterior canal, but also by rolling over for the CAT scan you don't need, the debris can evacuate from the canal on its own. So I do think in your setting, the, the horizontal canal BPV is definitely more common than what it would be in someone who's had positional symptoms for months. Um, so do you see it less but, than 10% or? In, in my setting, which is mostly outpatients, I'd say it's about 10%. But if I think I sorted out patients who had fresh BPPV, like BPPV that was just days old, then it's a bit higher than you're up towards 25 or 30%. Versus if I section out patients that have had positional symptoms for months, it's probably 5% or less. So mm -hmm. I just think it spontaneously resolves more readily than posterior canal BPV does. Yeah. No, I think interesting thing about horizon. Go ahead. No, I, I, there has been studies that said that, yes, it's about three weeks versus, you know, posterior canal is more like a month, a uh, couple of months kind of thing. Yeah. It seems highly variable, really. Yeah. 
Dr. Johns, when you're seeing patients with BPPV, are you also going through with treatment in the ED or are you transitioning to physical therapy? Well, I, I always treat them myself. Um, I usually use it as a learning opportunity to um, to teach other physicians about it, especially the junior learners. Um, it doesn't take very long to do it. Uh, I have had some complicated ones. It took me a little extra time, but uh, you know, if you you know, the, the length of time it takes to cure a poster canal BPPV, it's about how long it takes you to sew up a two centimeter hand laceration, which you probably don't even need to suture. Um, it's it's not that hard. I've, I've had seen my colleagues. I mean, I've heard so many things about BPPV from my colleagues. I can remember 10 years ago, one of my colleagues saying, we don't see BPPV in the emergency department. And I'm like, Ugh. yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, if you don't, uh, you know, the, the, the mind only sees, or the, the, the mind only sees what the, no, the eye only sees what the mind knows. Anyway, so, um, yeah, I, I've cured um, uh, the horizontal canal too. I use the Gafani maneuver. I find it easiest mm -hmm. to do. Um, I've also cured a few anterior canals, which you guys were talking about with Sue Whitney, how uh, you don't see it too much. I've seen, uh, you know, maybe a, a slightly less than a handful, three to five um, patients with anterior canal BPPV. And I've also seen some people who had downbeating nystagmus were nasty central causes too, but they had other things to suggest that. They didn't sound just like every other BPBV. Um, so, so I do treat it. Um, I've, I've had, I know that some of my colleagues will just hand them a, a sheet of paper or tell them to go look at a video. I have, have a story of a, of a woman that came in one time. She had broken both her wrists in a hotel. She was, she was traveling the States. She had BPBV. She had been to a neurologist who said, yeah, you've got BPBV. Go home and look at a video and cure yourself looking at a video. He didn't treat her and she never got it fixed. And she was in a, in a hotel room in the dark and she got BPV. She fell over and broke both her wrists. And I put casts on both her wrists and I cured her BPV on one visit. And I was uh -huh. like, I can, I consider that, I consider if you don't, if you are, if your job is to see undifferentiated vertigo patients in your, as, as you're in your practice and you're gonna see BPV, and if you just say go home or you don't refer them to visceral rehab, I consider that therapeutic abandonment. Like I don't see an excuse for it. Um, and and you know sometimes I don't cure every single one of them, and I'll tell them if they're poster canal, I'm not really worried that they're gonna be something bad. So I'll when I do it the third time in the department, I'll say, remember what I'm doing here because you're gonna do this twice a day at home, and I'm gonna have you follow up. And we have a rapid access dizzy clinic in our city. Luckily, there's we have two. Uh, uh, medical professionals, one ENT, one neurologist, who have a, a very strong interest in vertigo, and they'll see them in, within a few weeks and make sure they're being sorted out. And, and uh, so we're lucky to have that resource. And they're lucky to have you because I know not all ED docs are actually treating the vertigo that they see, even if it is BPPV. I know, I know, tell me about it. I, I had one of my colleagues uh, say, uh, uh, just I gave her the sheet of paper and, um, yeah, I don't have time to, to treat that. It's, it, it was mild, and, you know, I don't have time. I'm like, I, I don't get it. That, that grinds it's, my gears too. <laughs> because, I mean, emergency physicians, if you ask them, why do they become emergency physicians? I like doing procedures, I like helping people. Well, the, the epi maneuver has the lowest number needed to treat of almost anything in the world. Why don't you do something? It doesn't cost anything. It takes you like five minutes to do if you're if you're a little slow. 
why why would you do it? And I think it's because of fear that they they don't understand exactly, and they haven't done it. They haven't seen the people get better, or maybe they've done it on somebody who who who. The, what I actually think is one of the reasons why it's not being adopted as well by emergency physicians because. 30 to 40% of them have horizontal canal PPPV and the epi maneuver is not going to help them. So if they don't recognize that this is not uh, uh, a poster canal PPV, this will not be helped with the inepi, then, uh, you know, they're not going to, they're, they're going to try and do an epi and it's not going to work. And they say, well, it doesn't work. The other thing they, they, they see, they see vertical nystagmus, vertical upward rotary, you know, with a, with a uh, poster canal and they go, Oh my God, that must be central. Cause the one thing people remember about vertigo when they taught it is that, Vertical nystagmus is bad, but they never realize that it's only when it's it's spontaneous or or purely vertical that if it's if it's vertical rotatory, that's okay. That's what you're supposed to see in posterior canal, and and so they, that's why everybody gets a CT scan. And as and I heard Jeff say before that you can't see the autolysts rolling around the semicircular canals with the CT scan. I, I'm using that line a few times now, Jeff. <laughs> you can feel free. I have a question. Um, if we are sending someone to the ER and there's a higher concern for possible vascular involvement, you know, there's CTAs, there's MRAs. What imaging study is recommended if you're if you're concerned about, you know, posterior circulation TIA, which may may evolve into stroke or do you have a, an opinion on vascular studies and which ones have the highest yield and sensitivity and that type of thing? Well, if you're actually worried about TIA, uh, I think that um, doing a, a, a CTA is, um, sorry, uh, yeah, a CT angio is fine. I actually think that I, I did a, well, I did one of my videos about uh, posterior circulation TIAs and how common is it. And there's some emergency physicians uh, who think that it's 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 actually like eight percent or something? They try and make up these scary stories. That it's common, but I, I as isolated vertigo, it does happen uh, for sure. But most of them will have something vertigo plus something else. And unfortunately, the study that everybody quotes is a study by Paul that looked at people who had posterior circulation strokes, and they quizzed them afterwards. What kind of little episodes did you have beforehand? And yeah, there was eight percent of them that said um, that they had some funny little episode, but only uh, only like 10%, 10 or 15% of those people actually saw a doctor about it. So what are you going to do with that when they don't, with that, I, you know, we're missing 35% of the actual posterior circulation strokes in the emergency department. How are we going to save that 2% of the, the, the people who have a, are going to have a, a stroke with isolated vertigo um, when, when we're missing 35% of the actual strokes. Uh, so anyway, the, the short answer is if you're really worried because they had diplopia with their with their dizziness or they had dysarthria or they had some wonky arm like that lady I saw that last 45 minutes, she and, and neck pain, do a CTA and make sure it's not a vertebral section. There's no major um, yeah, blockages. And then if you're really worried, you know, treat them antiplatelets and have them up, follow them up with our stroke clinic. That's what we would do. Okay, thanks. What uh, what are the what are the uh, what are the uh, referrals for vestibular rehab that you just hate to get? That you're like, oh no, this is not. We, we can't do anything for this. This ain't gonna work out. Maybe you don't want to say because you're gonna see those people tomorrow. But are there, are there what, are, what are the inappropriate? <laughs> um, I think the 
when I talk to provider, uh, physician providers, I always emphasize to them that instead of getting into all the diagnostics, because again, if you're just talking in a hallway to somebody, you're trying to describe who you can help is just always focus on symptoms. If they have symptoms that are head motion induced or positional, that's where I think rehab can have the biggest impact. If your patient's complaining of spontaneous type attacks of dizziness or their triggers have absolutely nothing to do with movement of the head or positional changes, that's less likely to be a patient that you're gonna help with rehab. So I would say the presence of spontaneous vestibular symptoms is a major negative prognostic indicator for vestibular rehab being helpful. Now, one thing I'd say about that is that the, I don't know if, how much you guys are into the vestibular syndrome, the episodic vestibular syndrome. So you're talking about a spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome. I don't really like those, those designations because they put vestibular migraine in there, which is, I'm sure you know, is often very positional and can mm -hmm. often last for very long. Now they, they, they sound like they're an acute vestibular syndrome. So um, I would wonder, uh, you know, people who have vestibular migraine, you guys can help them though, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't, um, I think, shied away from it in general, just because it was something that was a little bit more elusive. It was difficult to take care of. Um, this is something that I've seen a lot more of lately and have gotten a lot of referrals just because we have a doctor in my area that focuses more on migraine. They figured out where I was and we've had a really good rapport. So, you know, this, you can do a lot for vestibular migraine and rehab, whether it's just down to education. Um, working on symptoms when it comes to musculoskeletal issues in the neck, working on deep re relaxation <laughs> techniques and calming down um, or down-regulating the central nervous system, getting some vestibular therapy and just for they can manage symptoms. We're not treating migraine activity, right? We're treating the patient's symptoms. You know, Jeff has a good point. We want to know the symptoms. We want to treat symptoms. Like I had a referral today for physical therapy for hearing loss. Hmm. You know, that's something that's I cool. can't necessarily yeah, treat. And then um, you help that patient, right? <laughs> well, so you know what? When it comes down to it, um, our approach to physical therapy is very holistic. So yes, this patient had hearing loss. That was a diagnosis on the script. But it turns out he has a significant history of otosclerosis. Um, he has hearing loss in one ear, but this has also been accompanied by some difficulty in balancing. And there were other musculoskeletal issues that were contributing to this factor, right? So he had some slap, but he had some peripheral neuropathy. He's an older gentleman and he's six foot four. So he's got a lot further to fall than a lot of most people his age. So yes, I'm not treating the hearing loss, but we can work on balance strategies. We can work on strengthening the vestibular system because he hasn't been moving as much lately due to all these symptoms where we can get him more confident, a little bit safer at home and educate the patient. So yeah, those, those scripts that come in where it says, you know, right-sided hearing loss probably isn't on the top of my list of things to treat, but approaching with the, this with the patient, there are still things that we can do for them. Um, the things that we can't do are unstable conditions like Meniere's disease. And again, we're not treating Meniere's, we're not treating these sudden drop attacks and these issues, but we can work with the patient to make sure that they're at less of a fall risk. We can make sure they have a good home program, that they're moving, educate the patient, and then kind of set them on, on their way at home with the home program while they work with their doctors to um, mediate the issue, whether this is through diet, which you know we've spoken on the past is not necessarily the top thing supported by research to help um, curve symptoms, or if it's 
going through intra uh, tympanic injections. At that point, that's when we'd welcome the patient back with open arms, because if they're going to start doing a gentamicin injection to slowly kill that inner ear to, to help fix the drop attacks from Meniere's, then we want to get them in the clinic and do vestibular therapy with them to help them compensate. So, you know, there's caveats to everything. We can't treat everything. We're not going to solve everything, but we can address the patient's symptoms or issues in certain ways with physical therapy, whether it's vestibular related or musculoskeletal related. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that, that, that your world is different from my world because I've only seen two or three Meniere's disease in my life. And, and, and I think the reason why is because they get diagnosed, they know their attack is going to be, if they go to the emergency department, usually by the time they register and get to see the patient, they're probably on the way getting better. And so they don't come to the emergency department very often. I, I've seen more anterior canal BPVD than I have been years. And you guys are probably seeing a, a, a fair number, I guess. You know, the other thing to think about as a referring provider and I'm probably biased because I am a vestibular physical therapist, but usually there's some way we can help the patient, whether it's just straight education or from a level of function and safety. If, if we can't help them the way that we would hope to help them, we can at least make sure they're safe and how they're currently moving. So I, I like to think of us more as a dumping ground a little bit. When other healthcare providers are unsure what to do with a patient, send them to us and then we can decide how far in our therapy we can go with them based on how they respond. What do you guys think? Yeah, or at least make recommendations of where they can go. So we're in yeah. a unique position where we have a lot of time to sit and listen to the patient. We have a lot of time to really figure out what's going on, educate them. You know, I'll have, so we have, a, I have a, a couple of patients that will come in. I think that there was horizontal canal involvement. They were either in the ER or they saw their, their physician. They did positional testing. They said it made them feel horrible. The room was spinning, but since then they haven't had any issues. So I'll go and I'll do a test. I'll use my infrared goggles, positional testing all looks clear. It sounds like they probably had a horizontal canal involvement. And I'll take the time to educate the patient about beep and BV, what it is, why it makes them feel the way they feel, why they're likely to have developed this condition, um, and then what we do about it. So yes, we can't diagnose you today. This sounds very similar to what you have, but you wanna monitor your symptoms. Here's how you can potentially avoid recurrences at home. If this pops up, here's my information. I want you to call me immediately. We'll get you in same day. We'll take a look and we'll take care of it. If I can see you dizzy, I can diagnose you and I can let you know what's going on. But you didn't test positive today. Here's what we think it is. Here's what you can do about it. And we have that whole time with the patient to get them on board. So now we take away that anxiety portion of it. You know, this isn't something that just pops up out of the blue and it's not going to affect them when they're driving. It's not going to affect them when they're doing just normal activities around their home, but it could affect them in yoga class or if they go to the dentist or if they have to get under the car to work on it. We educate them at what could be potential triggers and when to look out for those symptoms and when to return. And a lot of a lot of times that just gives us the leg up on physicians because we have the time to do it. We have that that luxury. And then if worse comes to worse, this is something that we can't help with. We're very honest with patients. We say, listen, this is not within my scope of practice. Here's who I think you should go talk to that might be better suited to, to look at your symptoms and address your concerns and address everything that's going on and get additional testing and then kind of keep contact with them. You know, I have them email me, let me know how things are going. Is there anything else I can do for them? And just make them feel heard to kind of take that anxiety and scary portion away from what's going on with them. 
Danny said so everything how, I was going to say. <laughs> how, if, if, I, if I saw somebody who I thought needed vestibular rehab uh, therapy and, and uh, I want to refer them and I didn't know the people in my, you know, I, if I talk to you guys, I know you guys know what you're talking about. We'll send them to them. But if I haven't talked to them, how, how, do, how does a patient or a doctor assess whether this person is, you know, know their stuff enough that they're going to really help? What, what are the, what are the uh, green flags that says, oh, yeah, this is a place to go? I can answer that one a little bit. Uh, one bit of help is um, there's a directory on vestibular.org of providers. So usually if someone's gone to the trouble of listing themselves as a provider on there, they at least have an interest in it. Um, there's also an annual competency-based vestibular rehab course offered in the United States through Emory. Um, and so that would be another marker of a therapist who's taking the extra time to get the training needed in this area. So those would be two things that I would look for. And also, frankly, do they have video goggles? Um, to do this well, I think you really, it's very, very helpful to have at least that baseline piece of equipment in the clinic. So that would be another marker I would look for as a, mm -hmm. as a re referring provider. And when you refer Dr. Johns, I always tell patients if they're calling from places that I can't see them to actually call the clinic before they go to their appointment and ask questions like, do they treat vertigo? What kind of symptoms, you know, describe your symptoms if the clinic is open to that. Because some, in my experience, some places will advertise that they treat vertigo, but then they actually don't have a therapist who has done the things that Jeff just mentioned, or they only know how to do a Dix Hall Pike and an Epley maneuver. And we know that vestibular dysfunction is much more complex than that in many cases. So I always mm -hmm. encourage people to call the clinic before they go and ask those questions to be sure it's a right fit. Sounds we're, like usually, we're usually more than willing to come to the phone and talk. I've had patients call and leave a message with the front desk. They're interested in scheduling, but they want to talk to the person that they'll be working with. And these are more of your high anxiety patients that uh, really don't want to mess around with something that's not worth their time. So a lot of times you can call, you can ask the questions and you can ask to talk to the therapist that uh, would be potentially treating you and you can gauge from just talking to them whether they know what they're talking about. Um, if somebody's been referred to vestibular therapy, it's usually because they have a diagnosis at that point. So you can call and say, listen, I've been diagnosed with X, Y, and Z. Is this something you've seen? What do you do for this? How well does it work? Am I a good candidate? Um, being your own advocate as a patient is very important in the vestibular community because there are a lot of places that will advertise they do vestibular therapy when truly it's not the in-depth type of vestibular therapy that a lot of people need. I have a question for Dr. Johns. So if I'm a patient at home and I develop vertigo, when should I go to the ER versus when should I write it out versus when should I see my primary care provider? Like what advice would you give to a patient who perhaps is having their first rendezvous with vertigo about whether they really need to go to the ER or not? Are there certain characteristics that should drive them there or should every patient with vertigo new onset go to the ER? What's your criteria that you would share? Well, first of all, it's not a question I get asked much because they just show up. They don't, they don't ask me if I sh they should come. But I, I would certainly think that if people are having, you know, vertigo that lasts for as long. It's like I, I tell people that BPPV is kind of like if you spin yourself around eight times and then you stop and then you, you go like, oh, my God, I'm spinning, I'm spinning. And then after about 15, 30 seconds, you go like, 
you know, I'm not spinning anymore, but I'm kind of nauseated and sweaty. That's what BPPV is like. If you're having those kind of episodes, turning over in bed, getting out of bed, lying down in bed, and that's it, you're walking around. If you stay still, it goes away. You probably could wait, and 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 but where are you going to go anyway? Uh, people in Canada, it's uh, it's a it's a you know uh, government funded healthcare system, so people tend to come, except during COVID times when they were worried they're going to get COVID. Now they're coming back. It's getting busy again. Um, I, I don't I don't. It's it's a hard question for me to say who needs to stay at home. I can tell you who I want to come. The people are having all those those worrisome symptoms that I mentioned earlier, or just people are having acute vestibular syndrome, they're having constant vertigo, and they're having trouble walking, uh, they should come and, and be assessed. I have no problem with that. So who, who should stay home? It, it's a tough one. Yeah, I, I agree. I think if patients are having their first episode of constant vertigo that will not let up, I think that that warrants a trip to the ER when it's ongoing and not just positional or short-lived. But, and then you have to factor in their vascular risk factors and what other concerning symptoms they have with it for sure. Are they able to walk? I mean, if a patient is unable to walk unassisted, yeah. that's concerning. Call an too. ambulance. Yeah. yeah. I mean, truthfully, if it's a patient's first experience with vertigo, they're more likely than not going to go to the ED because most people have no idea about their vestibular system in general. So feeling this terrifying symptom. I mean, I, if, if I didn't know more than, or what I know now, I would definitely go to the ED immediately. <laughs> yeah. I've had BPBV and, and the first time I had it, I thought I was just overly tired. And then after I got up again and I realized I was spinning around, I'm like, Oh my, am I having a stroke? Um, do I have a brain tumor? And I'm like, wait a minute. This is actually after I'd learned about BPBV and other actually cured people. And I, and eventually I cured myself. I, I know an ENT surgeon, uh, same thing. When he woke up with BPPV, he was like, what is going on here? And he knew all about BPPV. It's he still, when the first time it happened, it was scary. Sure. I, get a, I get a recurrence every now and then, and I go like, is it a brain tumor? <laughs> no, it's BPPV. <laughs> That's everyone's first thought of brain tumor. When my mom got positional vertigo, I was I was actually excited that she got positional vertigo because I figured I could help her. <laughs> that doesn't sound I, right, one of our junior staff just tweeted that uh, he cured his wife of posterior canal PPV, and uh, and he uh, she thought he was a wizard. <laughs> yeah, magic. It's interesting. Yeah. We had an one of our ENT staff. If she's pediatric ENT, she had she's no longer with us in our department, but she had positional symptoms for a month, but she didn't recognize that it was BPV because she wasn't having spinning with it so much. She was just feeling mm -hmm. unsteady. Mm -hmm. So just based on not having vertiginous sensations and just feeling unsteady, even though she had all the triggers for it, mm -hmm. it never even reached her radar that it was BPPV. So mm -hmm. it's that just actually, interesting that even an expert can miss out on it by, you know, placing too much emphasis on type of dizziness and not the triggers and the duration and everything else that was that was classic for it. Yeah, that actually happened to me too, Jeff. I had BPPV. I would wake up really disoriented, but I, I really didn't have the spinning sensation. And it wasn't until I was teaching a student how to assess for it and I had nystagmus come out. I was like, oh, well, that's why I've been feeling this way. But I didn't it didn't register, really. Well, that can uh, be yeah. too in older populations, right? So they yeah. find that um, 80 and older, a lot of those patients don't feel a true sense of spinning. 
they just feel off or they yeah. just feel imbalanced yeah. when they change positions. So I think BPBV is, although the prevalence is extremely high in the older population, especially the older they get, it's still missed a lot in 80 plus year olds. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Johnson. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to say it. I, I am involved in triage at our balance center. Probably one of the most frustrating things is when you, well, reading notes that are devoid of anything useful is frustrating, but also when you read notes that come in and there's all this emphasis on trying to describe what the patient felt as far as their symptom type. And then there's nothing about whether there was hearing loss or whether it's occurring spontaneously or a positional trigger. Like it misses all the timings and the triggers and associated symptoms, but spent a paragraph telling you whether the 82 year old with mild dementia was feeling floaty, unsteady, funny, spinny, like all this time on the adjective of what they felt, which doesn't help you sort the patient out that much. I will say if any testing was completed, if if the testing can be sent to the place that the patient was being referred to, send it. Um, you know, we we take the time to, uh, I mean, Jeff taught me how to read audiograms and panograms and VNG tracings. And it is, it is hugely, hugely helpful to have any sort of testing that was completed on the patient sent with the referral, because there's a lot of times that we can look at that and get a better picture of what's going on to have those objective findings in front of us, especially if, you know, I've had a, a situations where ENTs in the area, you know, they'd run the VNGs because they get reimbursed for the test, but they weren't necessarily great at, um, at uh, evaluating the, the um, re, uh, responses from the VNG and looking at the tracings and making correct diagnoses. Um, having those tracings and being able to see what actually was true nystagmus and what were artifacts that were being picked up by the, the software has been helpful for me in some situations. Um, so if you're referring a patient, any testing that was done is extremely helpful for us on the rehab side. Yeah. Well, Dr. Johns, it's been such a pleasure talking to you tonight. We'll be sure you're, to link your YouTube. Like, you know, well, Epley wants to join for the wrap-up. Oh, Can I go oh yeah, we got to He wants to join. An audience, this means you have to watch this on YouTube so you can be introduced to Epley. Here he oh, is. Hi, Hi, Epley. Oh, Where's he looks like at? an Epley. Where's he going here? Yeah, move to there your is. right, I think. Move to there we go. Th this way, this way. Yeah, here yeah, we go. yeah, there you go. All right. Now we can see very made an appearance audience if you would like to see epley please watch it on youtube dr johns will be sure to tag your youtube but where else can our audience find you uh i have a cmaj article if you just search and google cmaj with johns you'll find a, an article about uh, bedside testing for vestibular neuritis and bpbv and um uh, that's basically where you'll find me and on the YouTube. And all the YouTube videos. You have to go watch the YouTube videos. They are gold. They are clinical pearls that you don't want to miss. Make sure you check those out. And again, thank you so much for joining us. And Jeff, thanks again for hopping on and helping us out. We love having you on always, always, always. You bet. Thanks, thanks to you guys for having me. I really enjoyed it. Good. Great. <laughs> <laughs> have a good one. Thanks, Dr. Johnson. You're welcome. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPBV treatment charts. 
Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.